Good morning and Christian greetings to uh, each of you here this morning. As mentioned, today is Mother's Day. And I just want to take a bit of time this, uh, at the onset here to just express honor and appreciation to mothers and the incredible uh, value that they have to society, to families, and to our churches as well. You know, one thing we all have in common is that we have a mother. Um, and I feel confident most of us, if not all of us, would readily acknowledge the significant positive impact that our mother has had on our life. Mothers have unique, a unique and special bond with children, which is reflected throughout their lives. Think about their nurturing heart, uh, their deep concern, their persistent prayers, their unconditional love, and then there's a lot of other things that we could mention as well. But I also want to acknowledge that not every woman has the opportunity to be a mother, even though that's probably a desire of every woman. And not being a mother in no way diminishes the value of that person. And, um, and especially in the context of the church, every sister has the opportunity to develop and use their motherly skills and giftings in relating to others in the body of Christ uh, and, and their children. That nurturing heart, that deep concern, um, persistent prayers, that unconditional love. These motherly qualities enhance the body of Christ in ways that men cannot and were not designed to adequately fulfill. And I, I, I find that uh, reassuring, and it's just, uh, I, I just like that. And the church needs godly women. What each of you women adds to this body enables the church to more fully reflect the character of Jesus Christ. And when I think about it, in an era, era of cultural gender confusion, I want to take this opportunity to affirm your inherent value and express deep appreciation for each of you sisters, and whether you're a mother or not. And for each of you mothers and daughters here this morning, uh, Help yourself to one of these roses up here following the service. That's one way that we just want to simply show honor and appreciation for, for you as sisters. <clears throat> Shifting gears. It's been a blessing to be here um, this morning. I was challenged by the uh, devotional and how it ties in with what the Lord laid on my heart, although not directly, and then the comments made during share time. I was not in on the Sunday school uh, discussion, but it sounds like the discussion there as well. I become very concerned when it seems that so-called Christianity becomes focused on and revolves more around the United States and politics than it does on Jesus Christ. True Christians are part of the kingdom of God. The United States of America is not the kingdom of God. Neither is China, neither is Ukraine, neither is Israel. And so this morning, I want us to consider the kingdom of God and what that is. And perhaps more importantly, what is my level of dedication to or my reputation related to the kingdom of God? 
I've entitled this morning's message, Kingdom Fan or Kingdom Fanatic? The first words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Mark are this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And the kingdom of God is one of those terms that we hear frequently, but I'm not sure we... Um, it's one of those things that's easy to kind of gloss over, and I'm not sure we really think about or grasp its significance. The phrase is found more than 100 times in the New Testament, um, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. And most of those times it's in the Gospels, which was in the context of Jesus' life here on earth. And for most of us, that term is quite benign. During the life of Christ, Palestine was under the control of the Roman Empire. Uh, between the Old and New Testaments, they had also been under control of Persian and Greek rule. And there was also a period in that time when there was self-Jewish rule between the Hellenistic and the Roman rule. And so generally, for us to have more context, the term kingdom is equivalent to what we would call a country or a nation today. Uh, so the kingdom of God, if you were to replace that with the word nation or the country of God. A little over a week ago, the world witnessed the coronation of a king, King Charles III, King of England, or the United Kingdom. So there are still some countries that actually use that term kingdom. But in first century Palestine, Jesus was speaking of the kingdom of God. When he spoke of the kingdom of God, it carried blatant political and even provocative overtones when he declared the kingdom of God is coming and very soon is at hand. As of today, most geopolitical experts would agree that there are 196 sovereign countries around the globe, although that number is a bit in dispute. Each one of these have their own supreme ruler, they have their own defined territory, they have citizens, they have their own laws, and they have their own justice system. And those are the, the types of characteristics, there's probably more as well, but what makes a country legitimate in the eyes of others. And in comparing earthly kingdoms or nations to the kingdom of God, there's similarities, but there's also some very distinct differences. And the biggest difference with the kingdom of God compared to the uh, political kingdoms of this world is that it has no defined geographical territory or border. It encompasses the entire globe, the whole world. And in reality, there are two kingdoms that have any lasting significance. And that's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. That's really the only kingdoms that matter in the end of that, in, in, at the end of time. Every human who's ever walked the face of the earth chooses which kingdom gets his allegiance. The citizens of the kingdom of God are from around the globe, from each of those 196 geopolitical countries. Every human is born naturally with a sin nature, into the kingdom of Satan. However, we can choose to defect 
to the kingdom of God, changing sides, changing allegiances. And this is not done through family bloodlines. It is done by the repentance of sins and being truly born again. As Jesus said in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The temporal boundaries of the 196 countries around the world are irrelevant in the kingdom of God. Born-again believers in the United States, India, Venezuela, North Korea, or China are fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter where you're from. And it's not something that we can just easily see or quantify or observe. It's not something tangible. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21 says, and when, he was and when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered and said to them, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So it is something that's within us as believers, as followers of Christ. Jesus did give some clues about the kingdom and revealed some secrets of the kingdom throughout the Gospels. Uh, Matthew 13, 11, he says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has, been, but to them it has not been given. And within Matthew 13, there are at least six times that Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. And so he's describing various characteristics of the kingdom of heaven. Also, a successful kingdom and God's kingdom requires unity and solidarity. In Mark 3, we read, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. It requires a standing together. <clears throat> Jesus introduced the concept of the kingdom through his earthly ministry. Some understood and accepted it more than others. The Jewish leaders felt threatened by Jesus' radical teaching and accused him of insurrection in order to get the Romans to put him to death. What Jesus taught was disrupting the status quo. Jesus was crucified with a sign over his head declaring him king of the Jews. Clearly it was intended to mock him, but it was actually prophetic. It was declaring truth. Jesus was the king of the Jews. Jesus was the promised Messiah, the anointed one. Then after conquering the power of sin and death through uh, his resurrection, the kingdom of God became a present reality. After the resurrection, we read that Jesus taught the disciples more about the kingdom of God than he had during his ministry. I would love to know what he taught them during those 40 days. Uh, Acts 1.3, it says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. In verse 6 then, just a couple of days later, or even actually was at the end of those 40 days, but the disciples still did not fully understand what was going on. And in verse 6 it says, And when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? 
So they were still thinking in terms of political or temporal kind of kingdom or country or nation. But John had made, uh, it had, Jesus had made it clear in John that when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's, it's of another kind. It's not what we see around us. And with the crucifixion of Jesus, I believe Satan thought that he had truly been victorious over Satan. He believed ever so wrongly that he had won the battle against Jesus, the very Son of God, and ultimately the war against God. But instead, Jesus defeated the power of death and Satan through his resurrection. After Jesus ascended, after 40 days, he ascended and returned to his Father. And the Holy Spirit came upon those that were gathered in Jerusalem. That was 10 days later. That's when the church was established, and the kingdom of God became a present-day reality in a limited way. It's, I find it interesting. This Thursday is Ascension Day, and two weeks from today is Pentecost. So we're just in this season of when these things were happening back there at that original, that first time. The kingdom of God is not some future kingdom, but a present reality in which we can participate here and now. Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then in Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. For you know him, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, I want to be clear. The kingdom of God and the church are not the same. The kingdom is more than the church. The church is the present limited reality of the kingdom of God on this sin-cursed earth until Jesus returns. Jesus is returning for his bride, the church, and only then will the full and glorious extent of the kingdom of God be known and seen. The church and its imperfect representation of the kingdom will cease to exist as we are brought into the visible and eternal kingdom of God. But until Jesus returns, we have this responsibility to represent the kingdom of God accurately and consistently by the way that we live our lives, like Benson pointed out this morning in the devotion. And that requires surrender of our own desires in order to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke 18 says this, Jesus speaking, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. There are also clear expectations for those who claim to be and want to be part of the kingdom of God, be citizens of God's kingdom. Hebrews 12 Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God 
acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. We, he deserves, we owe, we want to, we should want to offer God acceptable uh, worship in our, the way that we live our lives. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or pure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. That's pretty strong language. There is no inheritance for those as described here, but it, it's not limited to this list, but those that have sin in their lives, that don't have their sin taken care of. Galatians 5 uh, expands this or reiterates this as well. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, which means there's many more. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Because of Jesus' victory over death, Satan is defeated. Jesus knows it. Satan, I believe Satan knows it, even though he refuses to acknowledge it or, or maybe even believe it, but he knows it. But Satan is determined to continue deceiving as many people as possible before he will ultimately surrender himself to Jesus and be cast into hell for eternal punishment. I believe he knows that is coming. It's interesting that um, account that I read, World War II ended in August of 1945 with Jap Japan's surrender to the United States. However, it wasn't until March 10, 1974, nearly 30 years later, that the last Japanese soldier, Lieutenant Hiru Onodo, surrendered his rusty sword and bolt-action rifle and remaining ammo, nearly 30 years after the end of World War II. He and a group of soldiers had been sent to the island of Lubang in the Philippines in 1944 with orders to defend it against enemy attack and guerrilla warfare and to not ever surrender. He refused to believe that Japan had actually surrendered. Over time, the rest of all his men surrendered or were killed. Japan spent, sent more than 13,000 soldiers and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars looking for and convincing this man in the jungles of this tropical island. Finally, after nearly 30 years, based on a personal order from his former commander, he gave up his futile battle. I thought, that's a picture of Satan, I think. The war is over. It's been over for a long time, but he's still determined he's going to keep fighting, 
and he's refusing to accept the fact that he has been defeated. 2 Peter 1.11 For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have an entrance into that kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. We have the privilege of being a part of the kingdom of God. Then in Revelation 12, 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. That's at the end. We have this privilege of knowing that Satan, the accuser, has been thrown down, has been defeated, and we have conquered with Jesus Christ, with the kingdom of God, by the blood of the Lamb. So now it comes down to us. How serious are we about the cause of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Our daily decisions and priorities disclose a great deal about which kingdom is truly most important to us. In 1917, 106 years ago, a small band of men set out to change the world, and they did. Within several decades, their revolution had built an empire with more than one-third of the world's population in its grip. How did they do it? This was the rise of the Communist Party, and it happened in part due to their devotion to the cause as well as their willingness for people to sacrifice their lives for this cause. And even though communism was undeniably evil and ungodly, it was one of the most vivid demonstrations of what total surrender means and can accomplish. Douglas Hyde was a one-time Communist Party leader in England. In 1947, he defected from the movement, denounced communism, and became a believer. And he spent the rest of his life trying to expose communism for what it is. In his book, Dedication and Leadership, Hyde identifies some principles that communism used that he believes Christians should learn from. Um, and there's a lot that could be taken from this book, but a couple of quotes. The dedication of the communists are unbelievable. Hyde writes, practically every party member is a dedicated man in whose life, from the time he rises in the morning until the time he goes to bed at night, for 365 days a year, communism is the dominant force. That's, that's just what their lives pulse with, is communism. Another place he describes communists as 
100 percenters in a world of 50 percenters. Basically meaning that most people are not willing to give 100% to a cause. What is your level of commitment to the kingdom of God? Does Jesus Christ and his kingdom permeate every aspect of our life? Every waking moment, every day, like these communist unbelievers? Would your friends and co-workers and people you interact with day in and day out describe you as a hundred percenter for Christ, for the kingdom of God, or is it closer to 50%? So coming back to the question, kingdom fan or kingdom fanatic? The following excerpt is from a letter written by an American college student who had been converted to communism in Mexico. So this is a college student, an American, who is now a communist. And the purpose of the letter was to explain to his fiance why he must break off their engagement. And this is part of the letter, and I quote, we communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get slandered and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us gets killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn our back to the party. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes and new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into the great movement of humanity. If our personal lives seem hard, or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the fact that each of us, in his small way, is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. The communist cause is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife and mistress, my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. It holds me, it, its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this force which both guides and drives my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas, and if necessary, I am ready to go before a firing squad. So this is someone sold out to communism. He totally believed in the cause of communism. and He even calls himself a fanatic. 
what would our world look like if this degree of zeal, fervor, and passion for the kingdom of God filled our churches? Why doesn't it? The kingdom of God is real. It's true. Now, the world fanatic likely invokes a negative reaction from most of us. It does for me as well. And the, world is, the word is most frequently used today in relation to, in the context of terrorism or cultish beliefs and ideologies and so forth. The dictionary definition is a little bit less uh, negative. A person with an extreme and often unquestioning enthusiasm, devotion, obsession, or zeal, as in religion or politics. Close synonyms are radical and zealot. The term radical has often been used to describe those fully committed to Christ, but fanatic has a bit more of a jarring or unsettling aspect that I think gets our attention. And maybe one reason we react to it is maybe we're more of a fan than a fanatic. Being a kingdom fan is far more appealing and less controversial. A fan is an enthusiastic admirer. A fan knows about the person or the team, but is not personally acquainted. A fan watches from the sidelines, is a spectator, enjoys reading about and spouting stats and strategies and so forth, but just talking about it and reading about it. A fan is easily distracted and fickle. And fans are often fair weather fans. As long as they're a fan, as long as it's favorable or advantageous to themselves. I fear that many churches are filled with kingdom fans, Jesus fans. They're content to sit on the sidelines. They don't want to get too involved. It might interfere with other interests that they have. They like to be able to talk about him, but do they really know him personally? And they'll remain a fan until something happens that they don't like or agree with or get uncomfortable with and then leave. Jesus calls his disciples to be far more than a fan. He calls them to be a fanatic, a radical, a zealot for the cause of Christ. And he continues to call disciples to this day, you and I. He wants kingdom fanatics, not fans. He wants kingdom radicals. He wants kingdom zealots. Not in an obnoxious or militant ways, but in terms of complete dedication, unabashed boldness, total commitment, 100 percenters. Unlike a fan, a disciple or a kingdom fanatic is personally known and even recruited by the king himself. He's an ambassador. He's the king's representative. He's the king's messenger here on this earth. The fan, the fanatic, or the disciple is completely committed, devoted, and zealous. He's focused, not distracted. And he's centered on Jesus Christ because it's all about King Jesus. So in conclusion, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Jesus Christ is king. He is victorious. He has defeated Satan. Jesus ushered in an era of the kingdom of God, beginning with the birth of the church at Pentecost, to be fully realized with his return to earth to establish his eternal kingdom. And while there are about 200 countries around the globe, there's really only two kingdoms. Regardless of our nationality, where we're from, or where we live today, we can choose to become a citizen of the kingdom of God. And given the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross, on my behalf, on your behalf, I just ask again, are we kingdom fans or are we kingdom fanatics? Jesus is calling us to be 100 percenters in his kingdom, to be dedicated, to be zealous, to be bold, committed, radical, obsessed, sacrificial, a fanatic for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kingdom. Thank you most of all that you have both invited us and made a way for us to be a part of your eternal kingdom. And I pray, Lord, as we choose whether defect, to defect from the kingdom of this world or to remain a, uh, or to be a citizen of your kingdom, I just pray that you would give us the, the wherewithal, the wisdom and the passion and the vision to be a much more than a fan, so much more than a fan, to be a fanatic, to be a hundred percenter, to be someone that is fully dedicated and committed to your cause and to what you want to do here on this earth through believers and through the church. Just ask that you would go with us from here. And as John prayed for the seven churches in Revelation, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen.